Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks in the very last episode in the end of 2021. Hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And this is a bonus end of the year. Well, I was going to say special, but isn't every show just that little bit special? But this is a bit more special special than (laughs) special. This is our, well, a kind of a roundup of 2021. This is a a show where we'll have a a quick, and I mean a very, very quick delve into the news. Uh, (laughs) Many because there's hardly any news out there. but (laughs) Because there isn't much. We'll have a look. (laughs) <laughs> we'll take a look at the box office, but before that, Andy, how was your Christmas? It, well, I slept for most of it. I got up on Christmas Day, watched It's a Wonderful Life, because it's Christmas Day, to. of course I do. You have to. Um, it's the law. It's actually the law in England that you have to watch It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life on Christmas Day. They come round your house and check, and if you've not watched it, you get arrested, charged. The amount of people uh, I know who've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. You know I do uh, I do some BBC radio yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're all in prison. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mentioned it. I said, oh, what Christmas films could, would you recommend? I always start with It's a Wonderful Life. And the amount of people yeah. who haven't seen it, and I've got to I've got to really sell it, uh, which I don't mind because I love it. I think it's that thing that because it's an old black and white film, people have this aversion to watching anything that came out, you know, before the 1980s. Well, nowadays it's before 2001, isn't it? Yeah, it seems oh, so. Oh, that came out before Harry Potter. Oh, I'm not watching that. That's old. Which, on that subject, I mean, I've been, me and my daughter have been sitting watching some of my older films. We started watching Die Hard, so we've now watched the first four Die Hard films. She she wants to watch the last one. Spare her. Spare her. But, completion's sake, we're going to do it. And then, I'm already coming up with, like, ideas of what the next series of films or next actor to focus on to sit and watch her so she's happy to delve into the history of cinema but she's like me and she's very critical she's extremely critical about about films um if you think i'm bad for picking something apart (laughs) you should sit and watch a film with her because she will point out every trope every contrivance every i mean if if you've got a script that you want analyzing throw it her way because she'll rip it to shreds oh okay i've got one (laughs) I'll, i'll do that but I've even suggested that maybe over this next over the next year we might occasionally have I, I might occasionally record her opinions on a film to drop okay. into the show so she can give like that younger approach as to what she felt. But she properly critical about films. She knows every aspect of it all. It's almost as though her dad does a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that uh, that my, that was my Christmas. I got up, watched that, had something to eat, watched Gremlins too, fell asleep. That sounds like a good Christmas. Ours was was, uh, was very quiet. Um, in-laws for Christmas Eve, spent Christmas Day at home. Uh, we both cooked, which was fantastic. I've never done a full Christmas dinner. And when I want to say full Christmas dinner. I think we fed the entire street if, if we could have, <laughs> uh, because I'm still living on the um, on the leftovers. Uh, but very, very quiet. Um, and it was nice. Nice to just sort of kick back, chill out, play with your toys, so to speak. It was that kind of... Uh, uh, no pressure. Once we got some yeah. dinner out of the way, we we just relaxed into it. Caught it with some friends. Caught it with some family. Uh, exactly what you should be doing, but but very low key and enjoyably so. Uh, yeah. Unless you are at um, a, a Christmas party which is invaded by terrorists, for instance, it's it was going to be low key. I don't think there was anything else we got planned. We were supposed to be away now, 
as of this recording and for New Year, we were going to go to uh, Berlin, but COVID uh, and the situation in Europe forced our hand and we've had to cancel. So we've got a bit of a hold for New Year, kind of figuring that one out. I'm not a massive New Year. I like to I like to go somewhere uh, for New Year, if at all possible. Uh, and, and treat it as a as a as a as a chance to get away, even if it's it's somewhere within the UK. So that's sort of forced into this situation of uh, what we're going to do New Year. But we'll come up yeah. with something. We're normally just a stay at home, play board games with close friends and family for New Year. See Year's. that I enjoy. I I enjoy last year because of lockdown. It was just the three of us, and it, it felt a little bit. I think we were, I was in bed for sort of eleven o'clock. Yeah, just didn't care. But I I just feel as though you. you I, I'm kind of, I like to mark dates. I like to mark anniversaries and, and that kind of thing. So um, that bit was sort of important to me. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Assuming but, the government doesn't lock us down for New Year. Um, <laughs> I've got a feeling that they won't, but I've got a feeling after New Year, they will. I think we'll yeah. go into some sort of circuit breaker. Circuit and breaker, it, four weeks or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the first the beginning of the year will will certainly be affected. Well, it's I, quite telling that um, tickets for Scream haven't gone on sale yet. Ooh, yeah. And that's the big film of January. Yeah, there's not much else out before that, which will be reflected in this special New Year show. Andy will give you his thoughts on Matrix Resurrections. I'll give you my passing thoughts on West Side Story and Encanto. But before any of that, we're going to have a look at the box office and a quick roundup of the news. And when I say quick roundup of the news, there's about four news stories. So if you want to go and make a cup of tea, uh, you won't even have time for that. There's so little in the way of news. So uh, just a couple of things, Andy, really. N- nothing yeah. more than keeping everyone entertained. I mean, let's have a look at the box office because the big news in the box office is Spider-Man No Way Home, which has officially passed $1 billion at the worldwide box office. It's still not got a Chinese release. There's no reason why it won't get a Chinese release. They've just not set a date yet. But the film has taken the phenomenal figure of $1.05 billion in less than 14 days. But Andy, isn't cinema dead? Yeah, uh, cinema's dead. Everyone wants... Streaming's the future. And uh, no one wants to go back into uh, a, a cinema environment in this post-COVID times. Clearly, we've been saying it all along, it just needs the right film. And it turns out that something like a Spider-Man film is the right film. It's knocked Battle at Lake Shangjin and Hai Mom, which are the two Chinese releases that were holding first and second place for the year, into, into second and third place. Bond and Fast 9 have settled into fourth and fifth. And the result for Spidey far outstrips the general good for the pandemic results that we've had on other films this year, but shows a huge demand for the escape of the theatre when the right film comes along. This is the best opening for the US in particular since Force Awakens. Oh, my goodness. That is that is a feat. So, I mean, also, that makes this the third fastest film to reach the one billion mark after yeah. Infinity War. And the top one being Endgame, which managed to do that in in five days. So this did it in 12. So let's not take anything away. We're not one of those shows where we'll pull something down just to make something else look good. That's not us. Um, Congratulations to all involved. It it absolutely deserves to do that. And you say without a China release, that's going to make it uh, absolutely phenomenal if if and when it gets that release. 
So yeah. the other big film, on which you'll be doing your review in a little while, and I still haven't seen it, but by the time this goes out, I will have, and I will mention it, my thoughts on it in, in the next show that we do in the new year. The Matrix Resurrection, which took 22.5 million across five days stateside, even though that was available via HBO Max in the States. So while Spidey is theatrical only, the latest Matrix has made 69.8. Would you agree with that worldwide? Unless it's changed since I took these notes. Yeah, yes, it's just just around about 69 million so far worldwide, which isn't a very strong opening for something which, you know, should have been a huge blockbuster. But you've got the additional factors in this is that was the Matrix a franchise that we really needed to come back? Well, that's, Did it need a, a that's an interesting story? argument. It got released on HBO Max at the same time, which we know from this year that only two of the ma- only two of the films that got released on HBO Max performed well at the box office, and even that, it wasn't performed huge. They just performed well. Now, The Matrix. I've not seen it. You're going to review it. It's interesting, and you've sort of hinted at that that it's one of those films that. Did it need to come back? Is it a case of nostalgia? Was was the world clamouring for a new Matrix film? Uh, and it appears, no, it wasn't. Yeah. But I mentioned this to some people who knew better and know about the industry when I said, are you going to go and see the new Matrix? And it was almost a case of, is that out? I didn't even realise. Mm. So is it liked on marketing or is it liked on word of mouth or has it just got overshadowed by Spidey? Or, or do people just don't care about it anymore? You know, one thing that I think has muddied the waters is that only a month ago, they re-released the original Matrix. Right. And we had people who, like, I saw people online who were saying like, oh, Matrix Resurrections comes out next month. And someone, like, people replied saying, I watched it last night. It's like, you didn't. You watched the Matrix. It was like, yeah, but this was the restored version of it. And people are confused as to whether this is the Matrix sequel. Okay or whether it's just reissue of the original one. So some people probably think that they've already seen Resurrections, thinking that that's just what they've called a remastering. Right. It's, it's I don't think it's been marketed well. The trailer blew me away. It, I loved the trailer. Yeah. But I don't think it's been heavily trailered. There's not been TV spots everywhere. It's a franchise that is old, but people have fond memories of hating it by the end. Whereas like something like Ghostbusters, which did well, people had fond memories of the original Ghostbusters films. And so that coming back could work on that nostalgia factor to draw people in. Matrix doesn't have that nostalgia factor because the second and third films, I loved them. Hold my hands up. Absolutely loved them. But I get why people didn't. And I'm one of those people who didn't. I, To me, The Matrix is a standalone film. Forget this idea that it was a it was always going to be a trilogy. I'm, I'm sorry. No, it, no, it, it wasn't always going to be a trilogy. It was, it was that forced trilogy because the first one did phenomenal and was, was, yeah. it was one of those films that was a phenomena that changed cinema and changed action movies for a long, long time. And still, you know, I watched uh, Atomic Blonde, and you can still mm. see how the Matrix. The idea of an action sequence influenced films like John Wick, like uh, Atomic Blonde, like so many others. Uh, I remember the Charlie's Angels films doing sort of the, the, the bullet time stuff. You know, that was it was such an influential film. But the two sequels certainly muddied the water. And, and a lot of that love kind of disappeared. I, I won't watch them when they're reshown. I'll always watch The Matrix if I, if I can catch it somewhere. I, I just had zero, zero interest in them. And for me, they got decidedly worse with each one. 
So as you said, and I think you might have hit the nail right on the head, no one wanted to to come back to a a series that saw diminishing returns. Yeah. Laura Wachowski was asked in a press junket whether or not there's ideas to make even further films in the Matrix series, at which she looked across to her producers to make sure that they clearly understood what she was saying when she said no and left it there. So there's no plans to go any further with The Matrix. And you know what? It's probably for the best, to be fair. Top films 2021 worldwide. So now we've got the end of year top 10. So Spider-Man has hit number one after only two weeks with 1.057 billion. Battle Lake Shangjin and Hai Mom, the two Chinese-only releases, did 902 million and 822 million. No Time to Die with 774 million. Let's remember that even though it's lost money, that's a success. Yes. Because it wouldn't have lost money if it didn't get delayed through the pandemic. It would have been well and truly into profit. So stop all this negativity saying Bond didn't profit. It would have done. That's a great success. That's about as good as they could have got. And now the home release will hopefully scrape up the rest of the money. I hope so. Just while we're on Bond, I've got to give kudos to all the people who've managed not to spoil Bond for anyone who's not Mm. seen it. You know, in a world that we live in, uh, of course, you can you're going to go out and and find somebody who who has on YouTube or, or on a podcast. But generally, you think of the press as well, how smart everybody has been on on keeping stum yeah. on this one maybe because it's a slightly old older audience and a and a, a more mature crowd who, who enjoy bond i don't know yeah. i just think it's 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 really refreshing in the in the world that we live in that everyone has been reverential to the fact that there are uh, and possibly some big spoilers that you could give away on it yeah i mean if you look, compare that with how spider-man no way home within 24 hours of releasing in the u.s mm, memes yeah, and everything online gave so much away and yes yeah, yeah, like you say, the younger audience. I mean, I know that we did a little, a few spoilers on last week's show, but we did them at the end of our end credits. We did them as mid end credit stings, so you didn't have to catch them. And even that was just talking about things that were irrelevant to the film, but they're just the mid credit and end credit trailer. Yeah, Fast Nine is in fifth place for the year with seven hundred twenty six million, and then the bottom half of the top ten has another Chinese film, Detective Chinatown Three, uh, Venom. Let There Be Carnage scraped 501 million to take seventh place. The first film finished on 856 million on a 100 million budget. So it shows the declining admissions on that film franchise. Godzilla vs. Kong in eighth place, Shang-Chi in ninth, and Eternals with 401 million in 10th place. Now, it sounds like there's good numbers there, but when you compare them to we won't compare them to last year because let's be honest, last year was like it was like, the 10th place probably took $2. Uh, looking at 2019, the biggest film of the year was Endgame with 2.7 billion. And the lowest one was 800 million, Jumanji. Every other film took between 1.05 billion and 1.66 billion. So it shows that the industry's still got a huge way to go before it's back to the levels that it used to be. But Spidey is a very good starting point. And I think we've seen it ourselves, that we've seen people come into the cinema, which have clearly been, for the first time, coming to us. And they've probably not been back to the cinema since the pandemic started. Because we've had families coming in. Like you, We can always tell when someone's new to us. Because when we scan their tickets, we've only got one corridor with screens. They still look at you confused as to where they're supposed to go. It's like... Uh, down the corridor. Everything's down the one corridor. Oh, <laughs> uh, but it, we've seen a great audience, young, old, full range. It's been great. And this is what the cinemas have needed, something to draw the public in 
to make them realise what a safe and comfortable environment a cinema can be. Well, we've been saying that all the way through our uh, pandemic shows, is that if you, if you build it, people will come, to quote, uh, <laughs> quote a line. But it's needed. It's needed that kind of a movie. It's needed the escapism movie, something that's got a little bit of positivity, colour and uh, optimism, I think. You know, when we yeah. talked about it in, in, in our last show, how cinema audiences have changed over the last few years and, and how that reflects what audiences want and what audiences need. Again, I'll, I'll reference that one to talk about West Side Story. Mm. But no, it's it, it's positive for everyone, even Zack Snyder fans. You've got to relish the fact that people are coming back and they're coming back with a superhero movie and cinema isn't dead. Yeah. So a little bit of news, and it only is a little bit of news, a, a sort of a, a soup son of news rather than the usual full buffet. Jean-Pierre Junot returns to uh, films with a big science fiction uh, movie. Of course, you'll know Jean-Pierre Junot from probably... City uh, of Lost Children, Delicatessen. Two of my favourite films of all time. I was going to (laughs) say Alien, uh, but I won't now because I think you've done all the heavy lifting for me. But it's good to see him back. Um, Alien was a a, a blip on his filmography as opposed to a highlight, but uh, always makes interesting and beautiful looking. Beautiful looking films, and I'm glad to see him back in sci-fi territory. The, the little tease trailer for it look it looks very much his style stylized aesthetic, but it's given a polished sheen to it. It it's it looks like a high tech version of Delicatessen um, in style and framing. I mean, I, I'm I'm on board. I love his approach to filmmaking, and I can't wait to see what he's doing in this day and age. Yeah, count me in. Count me in. Um, Michael Keaton. He's making a bit of a comeback as a character that he played nearly 40-odd years ago. Uh, he's back playing Batman. Well, now, we know he's going to reappear in the Flash movie. I've got thoughts on that, which I'll I'll mention after this. And he is going to be playing Batman again in the up-and-coming Batgirl film. So it looks like Michael Keaton, I don't know, is he becoming the, the centre pin of the DC universe for whatever that means nowadays? <laughs> yeah, well, they've got to have a Batman at the be- the middle of it because they panic if they don't have Batman involved in everything to do with DC. So uh, might as well get the one which... It, this is the thing, it's like, regardless of what everyone's thought about every other Batman, Keaton is the one that pretty much everyone goes, oh, loved Keaton. So I, I think it's great that they've got one that will en- entice all generations along. I think it's a shame on Ben Affleck that he's kind of got sidelined and kicked out. I thought he was a great... Bruce Wayne and a fantastic Batman. He was just given the wrong director. I mean, he was given the wrong films to start <laughs> off in. And he's walked <laughs> away from it, hasn't he? He's he's yeah. decidedly not interested anymore. And he's going to come back for the Flash movie. So a quick, quick point on the Flash movie, which you and I are looking forward to seeing because yeah. uh, to some extent they're doing the, the Flashpoint uh, adaptation in the same way that No Way Home was a, a loose adaptation of brand new day but interestingly enough we we all know what the reveals are in spider-man and we know that there are going to be multiple batman in a flash film so i've got to get your head into that space before anything else but do you think audiences not necessarily us but general audiences will go into the flash film and go oh they did this already it's a shame because you know the the, the flash movie has been so delayed in production 
that it should have actually been out by before now. Yeah. But it now means that even though they've been working on this idea for years, they're now going to be hanging on to the tails of um, Spider-Man. And like you say, the general audiences who cut, we get audience members who are wondering when Superman's going to turn up in the next Marvel film because uh, they don't <laughs> know the difference between the franchises. Yes. And it will just now be a load of confusion as to like, hasn't this been done before? Oh, does this tie into Doctor Strange? Which is a shame. It's a it's a real shame. Yeah, because we know comic law. We should do. We do a, a film show for film <laughs> geeks by film geeks, and it, uh, we wouldn't be able to leave the house if we couldn't carry those credentials. I, it just makes me wonder. I, I hope it well, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, out of all the DC staple, that's the one that I, I, I can't wait for. But I'm just kind of wondering, will it have, uh, will Warner Brothers at this moment in time be running around going, ooh, have we got to deliver something completely different? Or is there a sense of audience expectation where they'll walk in and go, yeah, seen this before? Yeah, it's, it, it, I, I think it's got an uphill struggle to manage to entice an audience to come in and give it a shot. I think it's a shame, but you never know. It might blow audiences. Maybe the comparisons with No Way Home might draw in more of an audience. Yes. Now that people have seen it done once, they might go, actually, this looks like it could be fun. Yeah, yeah. In other news, uh, John Wick Chapter 4 has moved, and we used to do this all the time, has moved its <laughs> schedule release date to 2023. So, yes, Keanu still knows Kung Fu, as we're about to find out, <laughs> but he also knows that his release date is now 2023. Yeah, almost a year it's been shunted, uh, which got people panicking, thinking that is this the start of the whole release date shuffle all over again? But it, apparently it's so that post-production can be done without any pressures because they're, they're struggling to hit the deadlines. Now, it's a long delay for that kind of excuse, so I think there's there's something else here. And I suspect, and I might be proven wrong, I suspect that the spin-off TV series that has been um, in production, they're planning yeah, to bring be- that out before it. And they'll use the trailering and the campaign and marketing for John Wick Chapter 4 to kickstart the spin-off TV series and to get the interest in the series. That's interesting and a good positive spin on on what that delay could be. Yeah. It's, it's a shame because I was looking forward. It was one of the films that I was looking forward to in 2022. But now I can just look forward to it in 2023 instead. Um, a film that hasn't been in the pipeline that I've been looking forward to. And we, we had mixed opinions on this when it was announced. Brian Fuller's Christine. Because we both got a love for John Carpenter's film. Yes, indeed. But I, I argued at the time that there was a re, you, know, you could go back to the book and you could readapt the book and do something completely different to what John Carpenter did. John Carpenter did a fantastic adaptation but left out so much of the book. Well, Brian Fuller, apparently, exactly is going for that approach. Okay. As he said, there's much. this is much more beholden to the concept of the overlook on wheels or the vampiric relationship between the car and Arnie. Um, Carpenter's film had left out various elements from the book, which Fuller sees as an opportunity to bring them back in and include elements ranging from the car's previous owner, Roland LeBay, to a more in-depth take on the toxic relationship between the nerdy Arnie and the haunted car that sours everything around him. So he, he's making it not just an adaptation of John Carpenter's film. He's going back and wanting to read the book. Bear in mind, this is Brian Fuller, who ends up get, getting all of his work cancelled. This film might <laughs> never t- come to fruition. But at this point in time, anything that comes from the showrunner of Hannibal pushing daisies and Dead Like Me, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm on board. I'd love to see what he does with it. And I'm hoping, hoping that it gets into production. 
And that's it for the news. But sadly, we've got to also bring you the news of the passing of director Jean-Marc Vallée, who died at the far too young age of 58. He passed away unexpectedly uh, on Sunday, best known for um, Dallas Spires Club, which garnered uh, Jared Leto an Oscar, uh, as well as 2009's The Young Victoria. So a sad loss to the industry and uh, our condolences to friends and family. Yeah, it was a sad loss. I mean, not only known for like the films like Young Victoria and Dallas Buyers Club that you've already mentioned, but also known for a lot of TV work, including he directed the entire first season of HBO's Big Little Lies and the limited series Sharp Objects. Far too young an age to go. Sad loss to the industry. And that is the news. Still with us, still a fan of the film file. If you've not subscribed or you haven't hit that like button, then do so now. You can enjoy bonus episodes, news as it comes out, and of course, your weekly dose of The Film File. All you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, and away you go. You become part of The Film File family. If you want to know more about The Film File, all you have to do is this. Head on over to Twitter, follow us at Film File UK. Head on over to Instagram, Facebook and TikTok, search for Film File UK. Or you can email us thoughts, suggestions, queries, films that you remember watching, you can't remember the name of, you want to track them down. We're here. We're your party people. We will do these things for you. We'll take the strain out for it. Podcast at Filmfile UK. I had one of those, Andy. I had one of those where somebody said, have you ever seen this film, which takes place in a, in a big scary house and it's a haunted house, or it might not be a haunted house. And I went through and managed to work out that it was, in fact, a TV movie called Spectre, which had Robert Culp in it. And I, I managed to figure it out that it had been on TV maybe once or twice. And it was uh, uh, something written by Gene Roddenberry. Finally got there. Took about an hour. felt like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's the small little questions that you have to throw out to dig down into it. Um, it's, it's basically like it's like a, an elaborate game of 20 questions yeah yeah I, I mean I'd, <laughs> I had so much fun doing it and they sort of mentioned the plot and they went saw it once saw it on telly don't know who was in it think it was a TV movie and then we managed to figure it out and, and got back and, and worked out that it was it was a film called Spectre that starred Robert Cole remember my son sticking around for film club at school years ago and like he couldn't remember what the film was that they watched he was useless for remembering the name of things and so I, I, I was just like, okay, so was it an action film? Yeah, okay. <laughs> was it was it a science fiction film or was it a, 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 a modern day film? Science fiction, okay. Was the big spaceships? Yeah. Was someone wearing yellow? Yeah. Was it Star Trek? <laughs> 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 I was like, yeah. I was like, there you go. Got it. Got it in five. <laughs> I love oh. it. I love it when you do that. I, I mean, this took <laughs> took time, and I, I came back with two or three possibilities. I, I, I don't know if I, I was correct, but I, yeah. I think it's Spectre. So well, at least um, it's pointed in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Which you can't find anywhere, <laughs> so we, we can't <laughs> really, really check it out. Okay, it's time for a look back over the year in film 2021. Now, 2021, as we all know, we started off in a lockdown, so I was watching a substantial number of films each week. Indeed, there was one week that I managed to get through 45 things logged on my letterbox account. 45. Admittedly, some of them were only 45-minute short short movies, but 
it was still a huge amount. I was having days where all that I would do was wake up at eight o'clock, go for a walk, get back home for about half past nine, and then watch film, 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 film. And I was watching between five and six films per day on some days. As we got to the midpoint of the year and I returned to work in May, my average each week dropped to around about seven to 13 films per week. A decent average, still managing to get at least one film in per day. A couple of weeks where I didn't even manage that because of pressures of work just just got in the way. Or there was TV shows that I had to catch up with because you've got to find time for TV. But over the whole year, I've watched at the point of this recording, and we've still got a few more days left of the year, so this is going to go up and possibly hit the next big marker point. 686 films I've watched this year. That's an average of 57.2 films per month, 13.2 per week. It appears that my most regular day for watching films is Saturday, which is a bit strange because Saturdays I tend to be working, so I'm not sure how I've managed to do that feat. That's got to have come from the lockdown stats more than anything else. I started the year with a film from the past that I've watched many times, and that's Dread on January the 2nd. And my most recent film at the point of recording is the uh, Mel Gibson Santa film, Fat Man, which, um, I mean, they're both polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Dread is a fantastic film. Fat Man, I'll be happy to never watch again. Now, I did start a project during the year to work through as many Clint Eastwood films as I can. And I've got a list made up on Letterboxd with all like 73 or 74 of the films that he's been in or directed in there. And I've managed to get through 33 of them before I got as far as Any Which Way But Loose and gave up all hope for life and humanity and uh, stepped away from the project for a while. I intend to return to that this year and complete that back catalogue. But if you've never used Letterboxd, and I think I've raised it as a neat thing at one point in the show, it's a great way to track your viewing habits. Every time that you watch a film, you can mark to say when you've watched it. If it's a rewatch, it will keep track of them. You can post reviews. You can give star ratings if you wish. But it then breaks down the stats so you can see who... Which directors you follow the most and like the most? Which actors you tend to gravitate towards? You can build lists to work through. So if you set yourself a project of I want to see as many French films as possible, you can add loads of French films into a watch list to get around to watching. There's links to things like the BFI's top 250 films, etc., which it will show how much of them you've done. And if you click on it, you can see which films you're missing and start working on that. It's for any cine file or film file indeed out there, Letterboxd is well and truly recommended. You can get it on all devices. There's a, it's completely free to sign up to. You can pay a very small yearly subscription to unlock more features in it, which is well worth doing once you get immersed into logging every one of your films. So anyway, in amongst the films that I've watched this year, which films was it that stood out? So my top films of 2021 taken from my letterbox stats and i removed tv shows from the equation because you can log short series like one division etc on here i've seen over 140 films that were released this year alone if we add in films released before 2021 like i said 680 odd films that's a lot uh, but for those released this past year my top 10 and bottom 10 based on the star rating that i gave to the films is as follows with the top 10 in first place, and it was no surprise to anyone who's listened to the podcast, but Dune made the top spot. I'm a huge fan of the books, and Villeneuve has done the 
whole story an amazing service the visual aesthetics the pacing the tone the casting the music everything just gels together to create a perfect first part of a story that i cannot wait to see the second part play out it was a sumptuous watch the fan of the books in me understands there's been changes to get it to the big screen. There's some elements of the book that even I thought might not work on screen or hadn't aged well, to say the least. And the tweaks made to transition the tale to the screen work in exactly the same way that the tweaks made to the Lord of the Rings trilogy way back when Peter Jackson brought them to the screen served the cinematic experience so well. Because what you have to realise is that reading something might be it might be the best story that you've ever read, but Movies are a visual and audible experience, and what's written on the page doesn't necessarily translate to looking great on the screen, so you have to make these changes. Villeneuve made changes where they were needed, but he kept the core essence of the whole film together. Absolutely marvellous film. Top film of the year. The French Dispatch took second place. I mean, it's Wes Anderson. It's Wes Anderson being the most Wes Anderson that Wes Anderson could ever be, and I'm totally down with that. Three main stories all have very different feels, even though they're all Wes Anderson, the different types of Wes Anderson. And the backdrop of the journal team run by Murray holds the whole thing together like the best glue that you can imagine. It was such a joy to watch, and it's one that I'm looking forward to revisiting on a regular occasions. It's a surprise to most people that this didn't actually make the first place, because normally Wes Anderson films are my top film of the year, but Dune took it. The third place is a more recent entry. And I loved the original adaptation of this and was worried that this new version would feel unnecessary. But Spielberg brought his own love for the original version of West Side Story and adapted it in a beautiful manner using locations to give the whole environment a personality, the stripping down of the old and the replacing with the new, creating even larger tensions within the communities whose lives are being affected by it. The musical numbers are great. The changes to characters serve it so well, especially the character of anybody's who struggle to be accepted as part of the gang has even more meaning to it now. The character was just a tomboy in the original adaptation. Now the character is transgender and so is struggling with identity within the gang. Plus, any film that can still be great, despite how creepy Anson Elgort is, is a win-win. Absolutely great film. It's a great musical. It's a, it's a timeless tale. And it was so well presented. I loved this film and I look forward to watching it again. Most recent entry into the list is Spider-Man No Way Home in fourth place. It's a very late addition to my top five. And this was everything that the comic book geek of over four decades in me has wanted. It juggles multiple elements and characters superbly. And whilst you could argue that it's pure fan servicing, it's done in the right way. Vibrant, energetic, traumatic, fun. Finally, Holland is given a chance to be Spider-Man and not Iron Boy. One of my gripes about the previous outings with Tom Holland is that he relied on the tech in the suit. It was always like, is the AI of the suit would like give him infrared vision or night vision and like there'll be the spider legs branch out. There'll be the death mode, whatever that is. It was all the suit that was doing the work for him. In this film, the suit does hardly anything because he uses his spider sense, still referred to as a tingle. I, I do want them to start calling it spider sense and stop being silly, but it's his abilities, it's his agility, it's his enhanced strength. He's Spider-Man, and the web swinging in this is fluid, dynamic, and straight from the pages of the comic book. And in fifth place, 
The Green Knight. Now, Arthurian legend has always enthralled me, and this adaptation of the middle-aged poem feels very much like an adaptation of a middle-aged poem, which I get can make it a struggle for general audiences. But for me, this was a sumptuous and lavishly shot film, which was sharply acted. I look forward to revisiting it frequently. I've loved the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and seeing it played out in such a serious manner on screen was fantastic. I can completely get why some people didn't not latch onto it. It is a hard piece of material to tap into. And like I say, it is an emulation of a middle-aged poem on screen. But for me, someone who's taken great pleasure in reading pretty much everything Arthurian legend, this was everything that I wanted it to be and more. Uh, bubbling under in places six to ten. We had no time to die in, in sixth place. Last Night in Soho took seventh. Pig took eighth place, the Nicolas Cage film. In ninth place was Nobody, the John Wick-esque revenge thriller with a huge dollop of comedy in it. If you've not seen it, well worth checking out. And in 10th place, another late entry was Don't Look Up, which is the Adam McKay, very on-the-nose political satire. Bubbling under are films such as Candyman, Mitchells vs. the Machines, The Harder They Fall, Ghostbusters Afterlife, The Sparks Brothers, Schumacher, and Barb and Star. There was plenty more that made three and a half stars or more, but narrowing it down, I had to finish with 10 films. So that's my top 10. When I looked back over this year, I thought it was going to be a, a difficult choice to make for, for top five. I just didn't think I'd seen that much. And then suddenly going back through the list, realised that uh, I'd seen some great films. So I, in no particular order, uh, Promising Young Woman, I just thought it was uh, vibrant, clever. It was uh, provocative. It was a horror film. It was a thriller. Carrie Mulligan as Cassie was just uh, a tour de force, incredible screen presence in it. I thought it was was absolutely, absolutely stunning piece of, of filmmaking and a, a, a stunning story that took me in directions I just didn't expect, made me feel things that I didn't always feel comfortable feeling. Uh, you mentioned it, Mitchells versus the Machines, um, like Into the Spider-Verse, which was beautifully animated and, and so clever and doing something new with the form. I thought this was uh, was all those things produced by uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Animated comedy about a dysfunctional family battling a robotic apocalypse. And from the moment it started and I, and I fell into this film, it felt like I was watching a, a classic film. Yeah. Beautifully done. Look great. And, and more importantly, it had me in stitches. There were, there were gags, there were gags, and then there were more gags. And, and it wasn't just jokes for jokes uh, sake. It was held together by a really good touching storyline. There's been a few over the last year or so, Groundhog Day styled movies. And, and I had to choose one out of this because I thought there were, it was hard to do because it was, a, a, it was a, almost a split decision between a map of tiny things, which you introduced me to and absolutely yeah. adored, and Palm Springs. But Palm Springs won because it did something absolutely fresh with a, a genre piece now that, that isn't becoming old and tired, but it just brought it to life in a way. Again, all the things that, that I've just talked about with Mitchells versus the, the Machines, it, it was it was visually stunning. It was touching. It was funny. It was clever. 
it had great chemistry between between the leads, um, who neither of them have been better, and they are great leads. Uh, Andy Schamberg and, and Christine Millier. It just it just kept it kept it fresh all the way through, uh, and I just thought it, I thought it glowed as a film. I, I considered putting Nomadland in there because um, I, I I didn't. I, I thought it was a was a was a, an interestingly good film, but emotionally unconnecting. So I didn't. <laughs> Ultimately, I didn't put it in. Yeah. <laughs> um, no time to die would make there because it was just superb. What a, a a way to do something with a franchise that is fresh and exciting again. And this this term fresh is coming up uh, yeah. more than once. I um I thought Craig has has never been better. He's made Bond his own and he's he clearly he's, he's got fingerprints all over where where bond has gone uh and i'm still not going to give away what happens in it because I, I think if you've not seen it now is the chance to to see it shang chai was just on the edge of it but if i'm going to go for five then it has to be dune yeah because I... it is it's beautiful it's it's a it's exactly what cinema should be it doesn't pull its punches in the way that it delivers story by being thinking that its audience is smart and not talking down to them. It looked fantastic. It was clever. It took form, uh, a literary form, and, and made it into something that is purely, purely cinematic. It made me want the sequel from the minute the, the last shot happened and the credits rolled. Um, it, well, well acted, but it, it's even no matter how good the cast is, and they are good, this is Villeneuve's film, and Villeneuve's fingerprints are all over it. So another top five we've got, Andy, is from my other half. And she says her top five for this year is, in no particular order, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is a film that you liked, but I wasn't bothered about. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I've never been that bothered with seeing the musical, but when it came to film, I gave myself a ch- gave it a chance, sat down, watched it, loved it. And then she said, "Cruello." Is was that this year? Or was it last year? I, as as I've said to you on many an email, they've just sort of drifted into one. <laughs> yeah, it, we'll, we'll we'll accept it for either. To be honest with you. <laughs> yes, uh, one night in Soho, which you know my thoughts of, and I know I'm in a minority, uh, and had to defend myself uh, when I went to see some friends the other night, and uh, um, I was clearly, clearly the one who uh, the only one in the room who didn't get it. <laughs> a promising young woman, and something that will make you happy: the French Dispatch. That yeah, yeah, great film. Not my film of the year, but a great film. Of course, it is. It's Wes Anderson. So, what at the other end of the scale? Out of the huge chunk of a hundred and forty odd films that I've seen, which films would would I advise people to steer well clear of? Right, only one film got my lowest score this year of half a star. Seven more films took one star, and ten took one and a half stars. So I had to pick just two from that upper tier of terrible of one and a half to make the list of 10, leaving the worst films of 2021 rankings looking like this. The worst film of the year is Thunder Force, the Netflix film with Melissa McCarthy, which thinks it's a superhero comedy. It's neither a superhero film, nor is it a comedy. It's dreadful. If you've not had the pleasure of watching Thunder Force, I envy you. In second place, it was a Sky original. It was SAS Red Noticed. It generated unintentional hilarity with the low budget effects and the fact that the channel tunnel looks like it flies off a uh, cliff edge uh, of the white cliffs of dover uh, before disappearing into the sea it it was nonsense it's one of those films that's so bad that i recommend people watch it just to laugh at how bad a film can be this was a sky original the devil below was a dreary horror film that 
used tired tropes and did nothing new. Every Breath You Take is a film so bad that I've kind of forgotten what actually happened in the film. Snake Eyes was at five. The G.I. Joe franchise has never been good, but at least it's been better than this before now. Um, In sixth place, there was Spiral. To be honest, I didn't expect much from Spiral. The Saw franchise went downhill after the first one and went downhill rapidly. And so with them saying, we're bringing back the Saw franchise, like, eh, I'll give it a shot. And it was worse than I could possibly imagine. In seventh place, a very late entry into my bottom 10, Clifford the Big Red Dog. If you want to know what I thought about that, listen back a couple of episodes when I had my little rant about it. Uh, Tom and Jerry take eighth place. Uh, Locked Down made it into nine. Um, A film that reminded us of how bad it is being in a lockdown situation by making us hate sitting there and being forced to watch a film. And then 10 was long story short, a somewhat romantic comedy that manages to not be romantic nor a comedy. Uh, Marginally missing out in inclusion in this bottom list were films such as Voyagers, Halloween Kills, Demonic, The Last Mercenary, Space Jam, Fast Nine, Yes Day and Coming to America. Before Andy gives you his review of Matrix Resurrections, let's have a look back at our deep dive into the Matrix. Human beings are a disease, and we are the cure. Now. So you're here to save the world. Everything you know about reality. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. Everything you believe about the future. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Will be a thing of the past. No one can be told what the Matrix is. Whoa. You have to see it for yourself. The Matrix. So The Matrix came out in 1999. That's unbelievable for a start. Directed by the Wachowskis, who were then the Wachowski brothers. Uh, The first installment that ended up being a trilogy. The film starred Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie-Anne Moss and Hugo Weaving. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside, which has now become legend, The Matrix. A simulated reality created by an artificial intelligence to distract humans while their bodies are used as an energy source. When computer programmer Thomas Anderson, under the hacker name of Neo, uncovers the truth, he's drawn into a rebellion against the machines, along with other people who've been freed from the Matrix. I saw this when it came out, and this came out kind of pre-Phantom Menace. And it was kind of the little film that could, because no one had really heard about it. There was some suggestions. There was a poster. There was a, a, a little bit of trailer. And it's a film that came out that absolutely ripped up the cinema. People sat and watched something that they'd never seen before, which was this combination of of anime, subgenre of cyberpunk, Hong Kong action movies, uh, Hollywood action movies, and it blew people away. And to some extent, it unfortunately got muted by the the two sequels for me. But when it came out, this was one of those films. And I, I saw it a couple of times. I saw it at a press show and then I went back to the cinema with some friends to see it. And then I went back again because I thought it was, I just thought it was that awesome. I remember on the run up to this film, I was excited for this film before it came out because being hugely into me sci-fi and genre, you know, reading magazines like SFX for 12 months beforehand, they were doing little features about this upcoming film that was going to be a live action anime and you know what it was going to it was going to visually represent images that we've seen only in cartoons such as ghost in the shell etc and that was it i was i was bought in and i was lapping up any information and this was this was 
pre me being able to get online and get onto the the small online groups that there were at the time. So on the run up to the film, I was lapping up any magazine that had an image from the film. I was picking up and reading and wanted to know more about it. And I was surprised once I found out that the industry expected it to not really do much. Yeah, it, it generally develops a, a grass level a, a, a grass level following. It's fans picked it up. People went to the cinema and made this film. Of course, the audiences always make a film a hit, but they made it a hit because they were they were knocked off, knocked off their seats by it. I mean, it, it had a cast that were either unknown or they'd fallen off the radar or they'd only ever been secondary actors. Keanu Reeves had completely fallen off everyone's radar at the time, and this was the film that propelled him back into the back into the focus point. The film was not expected to do much. When I started working at cinemas a couple of years later, finding out that they were surprised with how busy it was, and I was like, what? You weren't expecting this? What? Because I remember going there on opening night and it being heaving, absolutely heaving, because the buzz by that point had just blown, and they completely didn't expect it. But why was it such a, an influence? Story-wise, it's a cracking story. It's simple enough, but it's layered. Yes. I mean, all these memes going around about everything's made of cake. Matrix is cake. <laughs> if you slice it open, you can see the multiple layers. It's such a clever film, but it's visually spectacular enough, pushing the boundaries on what could be achieved action and effects-wise, that if you couldn't quite grasp on the multiple layers of story, you would just be thrilled and drawn along by the ride. It didn't look like any other film, did it? It didn't look like any other action film, a Hollywood film that, that came out at that particular time. I, I still think it's hard to find a film, even in this day and age, that lives up to it. The effect, I mean, going back to rewatch this, and this is a film that I go back to quite frequently, and it still baffles me how it can still look much better than a lot of modern day films. It still looks amazing. The bullet time effect is still, even though it was overused, I mean, it wasn't used in about 40 different films within two years of The Matrix coming out. The one I remember is always that it was used in uh, Charlie's Angels. Yeah, it's still a staggering effect because what the Wachowskis did is, and they didn't create the bullet time effect. It was not a, an original idea. It had been done in various kind of things previously, but it used to use just single still shots and then mapping them all together. Yeah, I remember it being used in Lost in Space. Yeah, they created a rig system with actual motion cameras connected around it, so they could film the whole sequence and then play it back in any order. So they, they had full fluid motion as to what shots they were going to be using and to spin it round and bring it back, etc. remember watching like the behind-the-scenes stuff on the DVDs and going into detail and just being wowed that they pushed the technology to develop it into such a perfect effect. I think the reason that we we associate The Matrix with bullet time more than any other film is because it was so integral to the plot as well. It wasn't yeah. just a great effect that, that was plucked out and like somebody said, you know, we should use this. It really became, it became a centerpiece. It was representing him becoming one with The Matrix and being able to break the code. Yeah, and it was it was a fantastic shot when we first see it, but it played into what the film was about as well. It wasn't just a cool effect thrown away because it looked great. It, it, it became symbolic to what the Matrix and the Matrix artistic feeling was about that one. The general look of the film, you've got all the scenes within the Matrix are tinted green. 
because at that point in time, most desktop PCs had your green monitors. So it represents that this is artificial. And then when they're in the real world, most of the scenes had a tint of blue because blue is a more natural feel. And that was a subtlety that I didn't pick up the first time they watched it. But I think it was when they got it on home release and I sat and watched it and I thought, oh, is something wrong with me, me colour because it looks a bit green. I was like, oh, no, this is deliberate. And it's only then that it kind of referenced to me as like, this is how it distinguishes what's real and what's not. And the music of the film, the music choices from the acts such as Prodigy, Marilyn Manson, Propeller Heads and Rage Against the Machine to the original pieces by Don Davis make the film what it is without, you know, without the propeller heads like running as the like low, like firing weapons in a in the entrance to the building. They're doing the full raid. Oh yeah, the act three. Would yeah. that scene have played out the same way with like without that music? Oh, dum 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 dum. Marvelous choices and so keyed in to the public psyche at that point in time that they became part of the whole Matrix effect. So this came out in the run up to Phantom Menace. And and people said that was the science fiction film blockbuster of of that year, and and I, I agree. I think it was it's more memorable. It stood a better test of time, as you said. If you look at it now, it still has a freshness to it. Okay, some of the computer technology is the only thing that feels a little dated, but hey, they're living in a matrix. It had a such an impact on on audiences and such an impact on films following that that it redefined sort of how action sequences were shot, which even today with movies like John Wick uh, are, are still used the, the way that, that 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 thrilling... It was the anti-Michael Bay effect to a degree, wasn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't just the fast cuts. It was the way that the action was choreographed that, that felt new and felt different. And as you said, it, it redefined Keanu Reeves' career uh, and, and took uh, Keanu Reeves further down sort of the action path, especially in martial arts film that he, uh, that again, we see him play out today in, in his own film, Man of Tai Chi, for instance, is, uh, it was a huge debt to, to the Matrix. It's it's a stunning, stunning film. It's it's a film that even though is of its era, it's, it's incredibly timeless. I mean, it, it's a film that made everyone want a Nokia phone. Yes. I mean, the, the, the phones, and those phones in reality were a hunk of junk. They didn't do the, the slick click noise when you slide it open it kind of sort of went and just dropped and then fell on the floor <laughs> it was an utter piece of junk but it made them look cool everything about the film looks cool the whole residual self-image thing like that what you look like in the matrix is your your self-image and they all look you know there's the clip-on glasses there's the long trench coats marvelous way of explaining why these people look so cool while they're doing what they're doing and it's because that's how they perceive themselves. We can't talk about The Matrix, though, without having to talk about Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. Uh, they were filmed back to back in one shoot, came out on separate dates in 2003. They opened up the world. Uh, there was an improvement on the bullet time visual effects. There was also the Animatrix, a collection of uh, nine animated short films, uh, many created within the same Japanese animation style a strong influence on, on the live. There was a game that, that tied into the films as well. However, for me, they spoil what The Matrix was. They they take away, they leave a bit of a dark, nasty sheen over the original Matrix. What are your thoughts on, on the sequels? I remember as sequels came out, and yeah, the first sequel came out, and half of the audience uh, turned against the film, and then the third sequel came out, and 
the remaining audience there, half of them turned against the film. Whereas me, I embraced them all because I embraced the the anime pseudo psychologies that it was expanding out. It, this was stuff that I'd immersed myself in through like me manga and animes, me Akira's, me Ghost in the Shells, me Apple Seeds, etc. So it was delivering what I was expecting. But I completely, at the same time, understood how off-putting it was for people who wanted just more of the simple philosophies and not to bog itself down. And it is heavy in the, in the, the following two films. It does weigh itself down and bog itself down and mire itself. And maybe, maybe 30 minutes of editing on each of the films would have tightened things up and made them better. Yeah, there are some fantastic key sequences in, in all of the films, but there's nothing like that rush that you got from the original Matrix. Not that the fact that you, you'd seen it, but it didn't have the compelling, they didn't have the compelling storylines that the, the Matrix had. There was there was too much involvement in. It became more about the fetish than it became yeah. about the storytelling. Yeah, the, the expansion into video games to tell opposing stories. There was also an online game that ran for a few years that picked up from the events at the end of the third film and allowed things to progress there. As you're someone who's been awoken within the Matrix, it, there was a lot of expansion to the stories, and there's so much potential within there that I'm still excited for this next film that's going to be in production. So am I. I, I hope it. I hope it brings back what was exciting about The Matrix and rather than what became turgid about the sequels. One flaw that I will throw at the sequels is the over-reliance on CGI. Yes. The first film, the action sequences work so well because all the wire work combined with like the bullet time effect was all done there and then. I mean, even things where they could have used CGI, I mean, the, there's the simple scene of, you know, the training sequence walking through the crowd and then the woman in woman in the red dress. Yeah. If you watch that, you will notice the same person in different costumes multiple times. And that's because they hired multiple sets of twins in order to do that for real. So you would have the, them going past a businessman in a suit and then someone who looks exactly the same dressed as a cop turning around and looking at them. And it wasn't a CGI mapping. It was, we hired twins. And this was all just so that they could create the representation of a training program where obviously they wouldn't have scripted thousands and thousands of people to use within this framing. They would have just, like gaming designers do these days, just remapped the same image multiple times. Brilliant. Whereas on the sequels, everything that they did where they wanted to replicate things, it was CGI. Yeah, some of the CGI came about because uh, Keanu Reeves famously had an injury on set that would have put production back a significant amount. So they had to digitally map him into some sequences but i think it became a bit too reliant on that technology yeah and it, I agree. as as good as i mean even even today as good as the cgi effects for representing people are a lot of the time it still looks like rubber dolls yeah yeah it, it does. still doesn't look real it looks more computer game doesn't it than it does it breaks you away from it and it disconnects you from being able to relate to the film because it no longer feels like it's got any risk or threat to it and that's the only flaws that i will give to the second and third films is that the over-reliance on cgi cheapens and weakens some really key moments even the scenes in the real world the defense of zion let down by some sloppy cgi yeah it should have been climatic it should have been powerful it should have been the last defense of mankind but instead it's like oh ah that didn't quite work oh that's no and it, it just felt too much like a computer game rather than a desperate attempt humanity's last chance going back and revisiting it over the last week there was one scene in particular and i was talking to a friend of mine who's a programmer 
And he pointed it out, which is when he goes to see the Oracle, Neo goes to see the Oracle in that sequence, she keeps asking him, and I never noticed this, if he wants a cookie, because cookie is <laughs> how you get information. It's those little layers to to the Matrix that give it that that extra quality, that that well-thought-out creation of, of world-building, which is why it's, again, stood the test of time and feels still feels sort of timeless. It's it's a film that there's so many levels that you can look at it, and I love the whole cookies aspect. So just a couple of quick points on the development of this film. The uh, Wachowskis originally pitched the role of Neo to Will Smith, and he turned it down in favour of doing Wild Wild West, which I bet he's still I mean, kicking what, what a choice? Yeah. Morpheus. I don't blame him, to be honest with you. <laughs> Morpheus was originally to be played by Val Kilmer. I remember I was in Los Angeles just before it came out, and there were images of uh, Keanu Reeves with the shaved head, with headlines going, uh, Keanu Reeves desperately ill, not realising yeah. that they were actually shots was... from, uh, from The Matrix. Sandra Bullock was touted for playing Trinity. But she turned it down because at that point in time, she didn't know who was going to be playing the lead actor or it hadn't been confirmed as Keanu Reeves. And she said she, she didn't fancy working alongside someone who she didn't know. And then Keanu Reeves got, got pitched, got um, attached later and she turned around and went, well, I made a mistake. <laughs> Over 20 years later, there's no, there's no turning back from the impact this film made. It changed Keanu Reeves' career. Without The Matrix, we wouldn't have the John Wick films, I don't think. We wouldn't have that indulgence that we had for a short while of, of, of Hong Kong wire work in, that ended up in a lot of films. Never again, yeah. I think, used as successfully it was used in the, in the Matrix because it was, a, it was effects, it was stunts that worked within a storyline, not just for a, a, a gee whiz moment. I'm looking forward to the next Matrix film. I know they tried to reboot it a few years ago with Michael P. Jordan in a possible lead role, but it is about Neo. It is about Neo's journey. And it'd be great to see Keanu Reeves, again, who seems to be revisiting some of his old characters, to come yeah. back and, and give us a hopefully a Matrix sequel that is deserved of how classic the original film is. Yeah. So, Andy, give us your thoughts on the latest in the Matrix series. The most recent entry into the series, almost 20 years after the third film got released, is Matrix Resurrections. Come Looks like old code. It feels really familiar. Drop a pin. I'll signal for backup. Did you hear that? I think our signal was traced. Bugs, this feels like a trap. I'm gonna check it out. The Matrix Resurrections. Now, the first Matrix film had a huge impact on initial release. It redefined what we expected from an action film. On the surface, it was sci-fi, effects-driven action spectacle. But underneath, it was quite deep musings on philosophies of identity. It was smart. It was sharp. It was thrilling. It had a cast of names who were either lesser-known B-listers or big names who were on their decline. Keanu Reeves at the time was kind of a joke to cast. Uh, the film outperformed expectations. And it put the Wachowskis on the radar. The film not only inspired a wave of copycats, action films were starting to use the bullet time and slow motion effects left, right and centre. Sci-fi films tried to get the same kind of philosophies. But it also spawned its own franchise. 
with two further films that were met with very mixed responses. I'm firmly in the enjoyed them camp, but I can see how they alienated others. There was also a series of animations to expand the lore, console games to let players run through the key moments of the films, and even an online game that picked up after the events of the third film, and we'll get back to that later. The Wachowskis were asked to deliver a sequel again, but always insisted that the tale was told, and they would never make a new film unless they felt it could bring something new to the series. So it is that almost 20 years since that last film rolled out, we get Matrix Resurrections. Keanu Reeves returns as Thomas Anderson, now a famed developer of a video game series known as The Matrix, who's being pressured to bring a new game to the long-ended franchise. He struggles with mental flashes of dreamlike memories, which he was controlling via therapy, and a regular dose of blue pills are keeping him sane. Struggling to separate reality from his game world fiction, the presence of a woman named Tiffany, who looks just like the character of Trinity in his game, doesn't help matters much. When someone claiming to be Morpheus steps into his life, his whole known world turns upside down. The film is a very mixed bag, and for everything that worked and impressed me, there's something that equally frustrated me or felt underdeveloped. The first act is sharp and smart and extremely meta. Analysis of sequel culture, the impact of the Matrix itself on society, only from within the mainframe itself. It smartly manages to question whether the events that transpired in those first three films were real or were we just watching a video game. Much like how the first film broke down the boundaries of reality and fantasy, this early act does the same, adding a new layer or two onto the possibilities. After all, Neo and Trinity died in the third film. So if they're back, then surely this can't be the same reality, yeah? Fans of the online game will have suspicions as to what's going on, thanks to the smartly developed storylines that that short-lived MMO had. And those of us who enjoyed that game will find lots of threads that were left dangling after those servers cut out in 2009 are picked up on. This is another great positive of the film for me. It preserves the lore of the games, which the Wachowskis had always said was canon and allows for some resolution to the events that some of us played alongside. But at around the midpoint of the film, the film flips into becoming just another Matrix film. The latter half of the film feels like a clip show greatest hits of what we've seen before. And whilst that may be the point, after all, the meta references and commentary on lazy churned out sequels would suggest as much. It isn't really an excuse for sloppy filmmaking. This flip to replicate the previous moments from the earlier films, while sharp in the first act with the film opening with an alternative representation of the opening of that very first film, feels somewhat flat and unexciting. It churns out action set pieces that outstay their welcome, just to feel familiar to the general audience, whilst not replicating the style of those earlier films. Gone is the static camera long shots. Gone is the sweeping fluid camera smooth bullet time, and engaging choreography of fights. Instead, we have fast edits, shaky camera, and somewhat sloppy CGI. Bullet time just about survives, but looks less impressive now than what it did back in the late 90s. Nothing in this film pushes any boundaries or alters the genre here. This is a safe sequel. But maybe that's the point, and maybe it's deliberately supposed to feel like a cheap copy of what's come before. If so, it's such a shame as the aforementioned online game showed what could have been done with the story. And again, I must stress that keeping the lore of that game intact is one of my main positives. The cast involved in the film are a mi mixed bag. Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, as a new alternate Morpheus, mockingly replicates some of Fishburne's character, but largely makes the role his own. 
Neil Patrick Harris is on strong form as Anderson's therapist. And we get a great return of the Merovingian with Lambert Wilson chewing out lines with glee. However, Reeves and Moss as Neo and Trinity feel a little lifeless and flat. Again, this might be deliberate. And Jada Pinkett Smith offers nothing to the whole tale when she pops up as an aged Niobe. Newcomers to the series, Bugs, played by Jessica Henwick, and the new Smith, played by Jonathan Groff, are okay, but generally felt like empty vessels for exposition. Matrix Resurrections is, overall, an average experience. It's not a total disaster. It's entertained me, but it brings nothing new to the table. Which, for a franchise like The Matrix, which pushed ideas and boundaries at every turn, it felt like a bit of a waste. Not as smart as it thinks it is. It does, however, prove the point that maybe, just maybe, they were right to stop the franchise after the first three films and the online game. No, seriously, that was so well written and that should never have been stopped. The thing about the new Matrix film for me is I was so giddy with the uh, with the trailers and now the movie's out and it's it's more a case of I need to see it rather than I want to see it. Do you get me? Because I can't, I can't yeah. imagine not going to a Matrix movie, a movie that I championed for so long. And I, and I just can't, I find it so difficult to drag myself to see it. You're talking about the guy who watched Clifford the Big Red Dog. Yes, I completely get the feeling <laughs> that you need to see something rather than you want to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I shouldn't be feeling that about a Matrix film. And as I said earlier, you know, this is a film that should be raking it in and, and should be having much more in the way of, of promotion and, and, and doesn't seem to be doing that. So I've not seen a great deal. I saw Encanto over Christmas on its uh, uh, Disney Plus release, which I thought was a nice, it was a beautiful looking film. I thought it yeah. was very low key, interestingly low key. And I could understand why it didn't make a huge stab at the box office uh, because there's nothing much that's really memorable about it. But I thought it was very beautifully done. And and it seems to be this sort of, this kind of modern Disney that, you know, everything in sort of wake of Frozen, you're just waiting for that next big flick. And, and this certainly isn't going to be a, a, a true Disney classic. But saying that, it, I, I enjoyed it, though I, I, I thought it was slight. What I didn't think was slight was West Side Story. Now, I miss going to see it very early on in time for our weekly review. Uh, I've been excited to see it since it was mentioned that Spielberg was directing. I love the trailers. I love the setup. I'm a big fan of the original movie, the Robert Wise version. And the thing that's always frustrated me about the Robert Wise version is, and is, as most people are aware, that the film was started by Jerome Robbins, who was the original choreographer on, on the uh, Broadway version. And he wanted to do it all on location. He wanted to do it all in a realistic setting. Uh, if you if you've seen the movie, it all starts on location and then suddenly becomes very much more studio based, and that's when Robert Wise took over because they went over budget. Uh, the studio didn't think that that uh, Robbins could get this movie out on time and on budget, so they brought a steady hand in with Robert Wise, who'd done things like uh, Sound of Music and yeah. uh, was was a reliable source. But at that point, there are two different films at play. One is this edgy version and then a much more safer studio version. And I've always been frustrated about that, having known the story. And it, there's something in, in its DNA that I can always detect that, the, that I'm feeling like two different movies. Of course, then you get the Spielberg version, which is shot on location and is so much better for it because suddenly it becomes the West Side Story that we should have had back in the day, but it also gives it that scale and that scope. Uh, and clearly they've thrown all the money at it, and that's what you would expect with, with, with Spielberg. It's a, it's a truly old-fashioned film, 
but in in that sense that it's not cut like Greatest Showman, for instance, which is basically yeah. a music video. This isn't. This feels. This is a traditional piece of of musical filmmaking where the camera lets the performers do all the hard work and the camera follows them rather than let the editor keep that kinetic pace going. And I thought that was beautiful. I thought that's what I wanted to see from this movie. And I think that's the reason that it's not drawn in a younger crowd. If you think of most musicals now, they 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 cut like 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 a pop video. Yeah. This lets the camera linger. This takes in the choreography. This does what, what John Wick did with the action movie by letting the camera do the work as a and the and the performers do the work rather than the editor doing the work. But I think that's the reason. It's not a slow film because two and a half hours absolutely mm. flew by for me. I was suddenly I was kind of working out where we were in in, in the structure of it. And there's some subtle changes in in the way that the story unfolds, having seen the original again. But it absolutely flew by. So why it's not found its audience, that's kind of my take on it. It's not an MTV friendly looking movie. This is a film about scale and scope. Beautifully performed. An amazing cast. There are enough story changes that make you feel as though you're watching something fresh. Even if you know the original as well as I do, I came into it and go, oh, that's different. That song's been used in a different context. That setting has, has changed that dynamic. It's been brought up to date for a contemporary audience, but it, it never loses sight of, of, of what West Side Story is. I, I thought that was that the, there were some great story changes that made absolutely perfect sense for a modern audience. I absolutely yeah. loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I'm, I'm disappointed that the film hasn't found an audience. And we've mentioned that audience tastes have changed. And I think this is an old-fashioned film in the best possible way of what an old-fashioned film should be but i think i can understand why modern audiences haven't haven't gone to it in such a way and and, and even though praise is out there the critical review is great i think it's it's too smart a film for a lot of modern day uh, cinema punters and i don't mean that with any disrespect i think it, it goes back to a time of when musicals were the pedigree of, of good filmmaking it's not uh, spielberg's best by any stretch of the imagination but it's a damn good retelling of West Side Story. Finally, before we go, we'll have a quick look back on the last episode of Hawkeye, which delivered just before Christmas. A nice, tidy little stocking filler before the big day itself. Fisk. I don't know how you keep that suit white with all the bullshit you pack into it. We're father. Well, that's the guy I've been worried about this whole time. Kingpin. Like it or not, there is no escaping this. Oh, it's just some Christmas. Maybe you should ask yourself what kind of person hired you. I've told the truth and tried to make this city a better place. The people in power decided to tear me down. Believe me. It'll be the last thing that you do. I'm ready. Andy, what did you think of Hawkeye? This final episode, I, I know there's a lot of people out there who were disgruntled about the use of Kingpin in the final episode. They feel that he wasn't as menacing and as dangerous as he was in the Netflix series. And I think they're kind of missing the fact that this is a Kingpin 
that went missing for five years during the blip and came back to find out that this criminal underworld had been taken over by everyone else. They're missing all that aspect. Uh, this has kind of been hinted at in interviews, and this is he, he's lost his he's lost his power, and so that's been represented in what it is. But we still saw him absolutely beat seven shades out of Kate Bishop whilst taking every bit of punishment and just standing up and dusting himself off. This is still the same menacing one. It's just that the Netflix shows aimed for adult audience and went a bit bloody and brutal. I loved what they did with Kingpin in this. Yeah. It's his start for his rise to power. And come on, anyone who's... There's people online who believe that they've killed him off. Did, did they not notice the camera panned up? Did, did people not watch films or TV. Why are you listening to this show if you don't watch films <laughs> on TV? I mean, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book, the mysterious death off screen, which turns out to not be death. Of course he's not dead. This was just laying the foundations for the reintroduction of the Kingpin. Um, I loved the episode. I thought it closed off the story threads beautifully. The The final confrontation between um, Clint and Yelena was, was heartfelt. It was teary. It was emotional. And, you know, her realising he's got his own trauma of the loss of Natasha that he's been trying to work with. And she hadn't seen that. It was a great final episode. And it's left me wanting desperately. If there's ever going to be any spin-off, I just want a spin-off with Yelena and Kate Bishop. I want a whole series devoted to them stood in an elevator talking to each other because <laughs> every moment just sizzled between them. The utter joy that they have of banter between them, with them like acting as though they're best friends and they really like each other, whilst they're supposed to kind of be enemies at the same time, is so marvellously done. I've loved every second of this series, and I'm this is the first time with a Marvel series that I want to immediately go back and rewatch them all back to back. You've said nothing that I don't agree with. This has been it's been just been a great ride. I think I like my superheroes to be a bit more earthy a bit more streety i've said many times daredevil is my my favorite character i thought this kingpin uh, and i agree with everything you said he's back after five years we don't know if he was in a blip that would be an interesting take even though yeah he wasn't as violent and bloody as he'd been in the netflix series he was taking that punishment which which also made me think he was a lot stronger than the version mm. we've seen before and in that way closer to the to the comic book character I hope he, he we didn't witness his demise because he's such a strong character that we have to see him. But it sets up it sets up the Echo series wonderfully, and and what a way to bring back Daredevil as well. So uh, I, I I've I've loved it. This is about episode three. This suddenly became my favorite of all the Marvel shows, and uh, and it, it didn't it didn't it didn't disappoint right up to the finale. Yes, the finale was grandiose, and and at times you know, uh, a bit silly, but boy, did they spend the money on, on just having that, that whole thing and set right in the middle of New New York, right on location and, and, yeah. and it feeling real, you know, Hawkeye, there, there was one line in it actually, which sold Hawkeye as the hero that he is. And as when Kate Bishop, it's funny how you always refer to Kate Bishop as in a, in a full name and the way that all the characters <laughs> did. Kate Bishop. That, you know, she said, you were a guy who faced an alien invasion with, with wood and a string. And that's Hawkeye's power, that he's fearless, that he, he will, yeah. um, he's, a, he's a master assassin, 
but he's absolutely fearless that he uses old-fashioned methods to do what he does and yeah. he will face down an alien invasion with with just a bow and arrow and and that was the reason at that point the whole series fell into place beautifully and landed perfectly i i've enjoyed it i do hope and know it's rumored already that there is a season two because i want to spend more time with these characters i want to see more of hawkeye uh, yeah. i want to see more of the hawkeyes and and it's been an absolutely perfect series. I, 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 nothing I can knock about it. It is my absolute favourite of the Marvel shows so far. But of course, we're going to have more Marvel shows in the new year. I, I don't know what we start with, Andy. I don't know where we were up to. Is it Moon Knight? Is it uh, Ms. Marvel? Is I, it She-Hulk? I don't think they've announced the actual layout of them for this coming year. So uh, it's going to be a surprise. <laughs> so we, we will be seeing trailers very very soon still looking forward to seeing what moon knight looks like on the on the screen yeah and that's it for this week andy in this special shall we say thrown together new year's <laughs> new year's special or so we just go brought to you with with much love but to all out there have a fantastic new year as we say goodbye to 2021 andy at this point we usually do our neat thing um but we said what's been the neat thing of the year and traditionally, you go first while I try to think of something. Well, my one is something that I intended to mention as a neat thing a few times, but I thought I'd hold it off to the end of the year for the simple fact that this neat thing has grown over this past year and actually contributed towards a, a first return kind of experience. And that is the music of Zuzu. Um, I started listening to Zuzu during 2020, during lockdown one, when Spotify recommended some of her tracks because of my love of things like Sophie and the Giants, etc., and l other low-key indie bands. And I latched onto her music, but this year I've become a huge fan of her music. I've started, like, I, I bought her EPs that she did and her singles. I found myself just finding a complete freshness and energy in her music. And this was the year that she's released her first full album, Queensway Tunnel. Uh, she hails from the Whittle, the other side of the Mersey, for those who don't know where the Whittle is. And her music has the passion and Scouse girl energy, and she keeps her accent. I think that's what, what makes her stand out in amongst a load of other artists on the scene at the moment. She keeps her Liverpool accent, lending her music and honesty and purity. I, I, I generally love any artist that doesn't disguise their accents when they're singing, and they make it part of their music personality. The first with her was not only her first album that I bought on release, but it was my return to going to gigs last month when I went to see Zuzu play at the Lead Mill in Sheffield, and it, she knocked it out of the park. It was a, a the it was an on fire gig. It was amazing. It was such a great return to gigs to go and see an artist on the rise and already at the top of her game. She was absolutely amazing. If you've not checked out Zuzu, go onto Spotify, search for her music, and give it a listen. Because there's just so much energy and passion within her music that it's it it just stands out in amongst another a lot of other acts of that ilk. Okay, my neat thing, and I've had to I've had a bit of a list. You know, uh, there are certain comics that I've read this year. Rediscovering Stephen King has been a good part of this year. Going going back to some novels, the the whole sort of detective stuff that he did that I uh, I, I didn't read the first time around. But we were talking just before we came on air about how I listened to the last episode of the film file. And I, I had it on in the shower and I, uh, I, I knew what was going to happen because I was there during the recording of it. 
and it was our review of uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. And it's the film file has been my thing of the year because we we deliver it every week, even when a couple of weeks when one of us has been dodged, well, mainly me, and and but still managed to get in and, and do some of it. But it's it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, just being able to get back into the cinema and and, and see movies and being able to talk about them on the on the film file is has been a joy. It's been a, a, a difficult year. All the things that you said, getting back into gigs, getting back into playing gigs, getting back into being with friends and family. But the consistent for the last two years has been the film file. We've changed the days that we record it. We've changed the structure of, of how we record it. But I can listen back to it and listen back to it in a way that I am an audience member yeah, I, I, you know, I do that thing and I go, I wish I'd not said that. Oh, why <laughs> Why did I say that? Could have done a better take, whatever. But I can listen back to it as a complete show and enjoy it. I'd have never been able to do that when I was on the radio. I, I never recorded the shows that I, 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 when I had a weekly show because I, I, I hated the sound of my own voice and hated, you know, the fact that I made a mistake or I should have said this, should have that. But I can sit back and enjoy the film file. As, as, a, as a separate entity and, and, and listen to it as an audience member rather than, you know, the, the co-host of, of, of the show. So it has been a consistent in the last couple of years. It got us through lockdown, got us through some of the dark days uh, for both of us. And, and it's, it's sometimes therapy. It's never hard work. It's always a pleasure to do. And it's always knowing that we, we, we will strive to deliver the best show. My only frustration with it is that not enough people listen to the film file, and I hope we can find some way to 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 broaden out and rectify it. But it's it's a it's a constant love of, of doing it, and we've we've done some really clever stuff where we've we've had guests on, and we've we've talked to people, and we've expanded what we've done, and the way that you've expanded the the brand, and you know the video clips and the TikTok appearances and that kind of thing. But but it's a it's a consistent love doing it can't ever imagine a, a stage where we go it's time to hang up it's strengthened our friendship uh it's made me think about film in a in a different way especially when we do the deep dives uh and, and absolutely enjoy doing it enjoy delivering it and and even more so enjoying sitting back and en- enjoying listening to the show i mean look look at the fact that you know these couple of weeks are supposed to just be little filler bonus episodes and we've been talking for over an hour today so yeah yeah <laughs> I got it in my head. This will take twenty minutes, but no, it's taken an hour twenty minutes to to do to do this, and uh, and and you know the the chat and the catching up it is it you know in in twenty twenty it's part it, of it. Yeah, it is. It, it's it, we use the opportunity when we 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 talk, and sometimes we 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 talk and leave stuff out, which is kind of what have we done over the last week? But no, I, I absolutely love doing this show, and I hope more people listen to it. So if you are a fan. Please tell your friends about it if they're they're film files or they are geeks in some way. Please pass on and and help us build the brand because we can't do it without you. We'll always do it, but we can't do it without you guys help promoting the show. So thank you to you and thank you to you, Andy. Thank you. Happy New Year to everybody and we will see you again next year. 